The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Wednesday, April 3rd, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here's a piece of political conventional wisdom that might not sound new or interesting. After all, it is conventional, but it's also wise. Here goes. He said to the president, you're going to lose. And by the way, you're going to make us lose. What we ought to be focus- focusing on is the Democrats' Medicare for All plan that prescription drug costs, which are important to everyone. And by the way, do you want Republicans to have a, de- a debate over health care yet again that will divide us and we could lose uh in the Senate that wouldn't up over a plan that might not be able to pass the United States Senate? I think you probably don't, Mr. President. That was Gloria Borger on CNN. Yes, the president learned the hard way, or not really learned. I mean, there was a stimulus and a response, but is there a lesson for the next time? Unsure. But it was impressed upon Donald Trump that talking about health care was a politically stupid thing to do. And it is. Polling shows that Americans give Democrats a 20-ish point advantage Here's how they phrase the polls when it comes to health care. Which party do you think would do a better job, Democrats or Republicans? The NBC Wall Street Journal poll says 45% of Americans say Democrats, 27% Republicans. Quinnipiac has it, 53 Dems, 36 Republicans. CNN, 20-point advantage. Democrats, 56 Republicans, 36. And health care, by the way, is a top, top issue for Americans. There are issues where Republicans do poll better than Democrats. Dealing with the economy, uh, about a year and a half ago, Democrats were in front in late 2017. Democrats did have the advantage, but then the Republicans took it. And now, as of this summer, uh, a poll shows that 49 to 41 Republicans are favored over Democrats. But among the issues that pollsters poll on, the big issues of the day, There are very few where Democrats have a big deficit, like the Republicans do on health care, like the Republicans do on, I'll name another one, the environment. So this advice, and also just this reality, to advise Republicans, don't talk about this issue, it is true for so many, many things. It's true about ethics. It's true about government services for the underserved. Right. Look at the Special Olympics. Look at the Meals on Wheels debacle. Couple Mick Mulvaney pet programs. I mean, by pet pets that he wants to drown. And as I said, the environment, Republicans are like Seychelles. They're so far underwater, there is little chance of seeing land. There are so many issues that Republicans just can't or shouldn't talk about because their policies have botched things so badly. Do Democrats really have any I was thinking of one, closing Guantanamo, but it's a small, small issue. And one of the reasons it's a small issue is that the Democrats aren't stupid enough to bring it up all the time. It seems like Republicans have as their core issue this one thing, that the Democrats are going to overreach, become socialists, support solutions that are way far out there. And then the Republicans will impress upon potential voters how far out there they are by lying about them. Republicans will say about Democrats, they have a raft of society ruining ideas, whereas the Democrats could just respond. Actually, we just have a raft, thanks to your global warming policies. 
So this would seem that the Democrats are in a really good position. And in fact, they are. They have credibility. They have the advantage, almost all the issues. Of course, they could ruin that too. They could ruin that if they think that protecting the Affordable Care Act isn't grand enough or sexy enough or big enough of a swing or, I don't know, Norwegian enough. If they think shoring up the safety net and delivering material benefits to most people in a meaningful way is no longer really a good use of government, if they think deficits don't matter, and if they let the perfect become the enemy of the good, because what will happen then? Then the bad will sneak in with a message of, well, you're, you're the ones who said it. We're not perfect. We might as well give huge tax cuts to corporations and cancel that recall on jogging strollers. On the show today, wait, wait, before I tell you what's on the show, I would like to plug the GIST's five-year anniversary, and I'd like to ask you to be a part. On May 5th, so if you're playing at home, that's 5-5 for the 5th of the GIST, and all that week, we will be doing special shows looking back, and even looking further back. If you would like to nominate a segment that you thought was memorable, or an interview that you thought was great, or if you would like to cite an argument that you heard on the gist that changed your mind, give us a call. The number is 347-960-6314. Help program the gist's fifth anniversary show. And on this show today, I spiel about the greatest political crisis of our time. A third and fourth woman have come forward to say Joe Biden touched them and not with his rhetoric. The audacity of grope? So is this a crisis? Is the Biden campaign in peril? Is the Biden campaign a campaign? Can this 76-year-old say anything short of vowing never to sing the line before the chorus of Sweet Caroline? All of that is in the spiel. But first, Lori Gottlieb is a therapist, a journalist, and a journalist of therapy. She has a new book out where she talks about a few of her patients, actually ex-patients, and one of her therapist's patients, meaning her, meaning Lori Gottlieb. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone is the name of the book and advice that I took in this conversation with Lori Gottlieb. Laura Gottlieb is a journalist and a therapist, and her new book is just so well done, and it's compelling on many levels. It's a story of four, five, if you count Laurie herself, five people going through therapy, but also about who shall therapize the therapist. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. Lori Gottlieb, hello. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. So you are a therapist with a journalist background. Yes. And so the first question is, why, when you were practicing journalism, I would assume that one of the motivations is because uh, you're curious about the world and you're, you're a very good writer, and so you probably like that part of it to some extent. But you're curious about people, right? You want to see what makes people tick. Yeah. When I was a journalist, I was telling people stories. Yes. And I was really interested in, you know, sort of what they were thinking and feeling and the why of the story. Um, and I think as a therapist, I'm helping people to change their stories. Right. So here's my question. I'm a journalist and I enjoy all that stuff about making people, how you know, describing what makes people tick and describing it to an audience. I never came to that point where I said, and I want to help those people change. I want to, the people I describe, and maybe I see uh, a, a flaw in them, or maybe I see what's going on in a way they don't. And I would just get so excited to explain it to an audience, but I never had that extra step and I'd love to help them. So... <laughs> 
either you could answer it one of two ways. If, did you ha- did you actually have those feelings while you were a journalist? Did having those feelings make journalism unsatisfying to you? Or am I just a bad person? Because as a journalist, I just kind of like seeing people expose themselves, but never had the extra step of wanting them to change and help themselves. Well, I, journalism did not disappoint me at all. I still do journalism and I love yeah, journalism. Yeah, book is journalism. Right, yeah. right. So, um, you know, it was more that, that I had a baby and I was doing journalism. And when you're doing journalism, you don't sort of get out a lot <laughs> because you're writing a lot. And I call, I had been at medical school before and I called up the dean of my medical school and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry because I want to, you know, I want to really help people and I want to do something with these stories that's not just telling the story, but taking it a step farther. And she said, Psychiatrists don't make people happy, Lori. <laughs> um, and what she meant by that, she doesn't have anything against psychiatrists, obviously. It was more that she was saying, you really want to be in the room having these longer conversations with people, not doing medication management, which is a lot of what psychiatry is today. And you will help people to change their stories if you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and go that route. But what does that do for you? Helping the people change their stories. I think it's fascinating. I think that people are so, it's so hard for people to change, including me, right? And all of us. Change is so hard because there's, you lose something when you change. I think people don't realize that. Even positive change comes with loss. Sometimes the loss is the familiarity, even if you were miserable in whatever situation you were in. Um, and then there's the uncertainty of what's going to come next. So I think that it's so fascinating to watch people take risks and do things that they never thought possible and really change their lives. It's an incredibly gratifying profession. If it works, if you actually see the end result. See, I'm just thinking about this guy in your book, John, who to me is a great character. And I would love to do a profile of this guy. I'm not exactly sure what his job is. He seems pretty important in the entertainment field. And I'd love to do a profile of him where you show him being excessive, where you show him, you know, impatiently waiting at a Lakers game or where you actually saw him in real life. And I would be so satisfied to put out this psychological portrayal of this guy. And I would never think to want to help him. In fact, maybe I'm a cruel bastard, but I would even even want to think to expose him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is... But he came to you for help. I know that. Right, but I, I was yeah. going to say, but it doesn't mean that, that that I liked him when I first met him, right? He was incredibly abrasive. He was narcissistic. He was, you know, thought everybody in the world was an idiot, including me. He was insulting. You know, he said, you'll, you'll be like my mistress because he didn't want his wife to know that he was coming to therapy and he would like pay me with a wad of cash yeah. at the end. Oh, not just mistress. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, said, <laughs> he said, no, you're not the kind of person I would choose as a mistress. Maybe more like my hooker. That's great. Um, thanks, John. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Yeah. And then he's like, isn't that funny? And I'm thinking, super funny. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, but um, but that's the thing is that, you know, you start to realize that there's more to these people than they present. I mean, people act, everybody knows difficult people. And the reason they're acting in that way is because they're protecting themselves or that's how they're coping in some way. And in the book, when people find out what John's story really is, and I don't want to spoil it here, but it was a it was a complete surprise to me. And I, I you know, and I think he's the person that as obnoxious as he is at the beginning of the book, that people are going to love him as much as I came to love him. Do you think that therapy of therapy in 2019 is going to interact with the world as it is? But do you think a major problem that people are having is just encoded in human nature and it's been like this forever or it, 
is the fact that our attention is so attenuated and life has gotten so fast and then social media puts all these pressures on and that, is that very common and a very big problem that you see in therapy? It definitely is. I think that so many people are so lonely, even though they're hyper-connected. They don't really have the the face-to-face connection with the people that matter to them. So I see it in marriages. I see it in people who are dating. I, I have younger people come to me and they'll be like with their thumbs, like telling me, and then he said, and then she said, You're as if they're texting. Huh. Right. And then I'll say you had that conversation on text. And in the book, there's this really great scene because this this client says to me, oh, no, we used emojis, too. (laughs) And she wasn't kidding. I wonder if therapy is something that's in a way encoded into our species or the need for that. But then I further wonder if the way it's practiced now is the best and most logical way. So let me just expand a little what I'm saying. It seems like we've been around for millennia and the need to talk to people about problems is absolutely a human need. And yet therapy is, why don't we, why don't you talk to someone who you don't really know, who you might not know to trust, except they have the recommendation of a friend and have some initials past their last name. And who in fact doesn't give, it's definitely not a two-way street. That seems weird and artificial and not how human civilization has worked. On the other hand, you know, I don't know that washing your hands before surgery made sense to people before we started doing it either. So do you think there's something about therapy that I, I understand your defense of it, but do you think that there's something about it that what improves upon what humans have always been doing or just kind of replicates uh, this deep seated human need to talk? Well, first of all, I think you're right. I think stories are how we relate to one another and stories are sort of how we make sense of our world. And when you're telling a story, you're kind of saying, you know, can you hear me? Do you see me? Can you understand me? And I think that even though therapists don't reveal themselves to their patients, it's still a very, very rich human encounter that happens in that room. That's very hard to describe if you haven't experienced it. But in the book, you write about maybe a loosening of the classic line about how much a a therapist should reveal of him or herself. Right. I mean, it used to be this idea that the therapist was a tabula rasa, a blank slate, and you wouldn't know anything. But you can tell things about the therapist, even by the way they dress or what they have in their office. You know, and if someone mentions something like The Bachelor, I will, you know, I'll admit if I watch The Bachelor, um, I don't, by the way. But... um, (laughs) Admit is the right verb for that, yes. (laughs) um, But it's like, you know, it's not like you don't reveal anything. I think we're very intentional about what we reveal because we want to make sure that what we're revealing is in the service of the patient. And so sometimes it can bridge a gap between the two of you to reveal something. Sometimes it can make them feel less isolated in their experience. There are lots of reasons that we might reveal something, but it's definitely always in the service of the patient. But you've Googled your therapist and your patients have Googled you. Right. And, And when I Googled my therapist, I regretted it greatly because I was so afraid that I was going to slip up. I felt so much shame that I had done this. And I found out that his father had died at at a young age of a heart attack. And I had been talking in session about my close relationship with my father in his 80s. And and I'd been going on and on about this and how I had this time to say goodbye to him. And then all of a sudden, I got this information about my therapist through my Google stalking. And I, I felt like I was editing myself. And I finally fessed up to the therapist and told him that I had Googled him and that I had this information. And all the air came back into the room. I guess in your book, one of the conceits is that people, or at least talking about your book, people might find it odd that a therapist would need a therapist. 
I find it odd that people would find it odd. You're being burdened with a lot of problems. And if you're a feeling empathetic person, that would obviously weigh on you. Why wouldn't, and you believe in therapy, why wouldn't you want someone qualified to talk to? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's this, it's kind of like when you're in first grade and you run into your teacher in Best Buy yeah, and you're yeah. like, wait, she has a family and she's in cutoff shorts she's and like, real. she's yeah. real. <laughs> um, I, I think that there's something about people not maybe wanting their therapist to be real. And yet I always say that my greatest credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person. And without my humanity, I would be useless to help people. Do you think therapy as we know it will still be practiced in 100 years? I do, because they think there's a very, very human need to understand ourselves and understand the people that we care about. And I think sometimes we need to talk to somebody about, um, you know, about our lives in a really deep way and in a way that sometimes we don't feel comfortable doing with the people that we see every day. Okay, so the elements are we definitely will need to talk to each other. That is a human need. I think the logic of someone with a little bit of an outsider perspective or who isn't invested or who doesn't have their own agenda, that makes sense. But other than that, I do wonder about all the trends of therapy, all the the agreed upon best practices, because if you look a hundred years ago, I guess Freud was hitting on the first two big things, like not being personally invested and also tell a story, but just about everything else has changed with his practice to now. So if you look in 100 years, I think we'll probably go in and out of trends of how to interact and how much to be present and what to say. But, you know, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Yeah, but I don't think that the craving and the longing for that, for that deep, intimate, you know, can you see me interaction, what we call the I-thou in therapy, I don't think that that will go away. Since you've been doing this, have more people been coming in talking about current events than they used to? Definitely. Yeah. Is that because current events are so much worse or why? I think it's because part of it is that, well, there's a there's a lot of difficult news most days. And I think the other thing is the 24-hour news cycle yeah. that, you know, people are hearing news all the time. And because people often can't tolerate silence, they'll, they'll t- like if they're eating lunch or whatever, they'll turn on, you know, the news and then they're getting it all day long. Yeah. Or even if they don't want to. I mean, they go on Twitter for whatever they use Twitter for and it's pushing news at you that you didn't ask for and we tend to catastrophize the news but can you i mean can you matt it's not really the case that things are necessarily worse than other long periods of history right i mean during world war ii can you imagine the amount of therapy that should have gone on <laughs> i think it's that we're more aware yes in some ways and i think it causes stress because i think people feel helpless and they don't quite know what they can do about it are there big generational differences that you say you know, in the end, I think that they're very similar. They present very differently, but I think they're they're really struggling with the same sort of human questions we all struggle with at any age. You know, in the book, I talk about there's a woman who's about to turn 70 and she feels like her adult children won't talk to her and she's been married a few times and she sort of feels like she's messed up her life. And, and I think that she has the same questions that the 20-something in the book has about how to love and be loved, about regret, about what do you do with the past that you can't change you know, all of these sort of essential questions about how do we get through our lives in a way that that helps us connect with other people. I think everybody really just at the end of the day wants to feel like they know how to love and be loved. Lori Gottlieb is the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. She writes for The Atlantic and is the best-selling author of Marry Him. Thank you. Great to meet you. 
Oh, my pleasure. And now the spiel. It's not like I want to defend the presidential campaign of Joe Biden. It's not like I'm thrilled to rush to the defense of the varied and detailed policy proposals undergirding the presidential campaign of Joe Biden. It's not like Joe Biden has varied and many policy proposals. It's further not like Joe Biden actually has a presidential campaign. But while it is like Joe Biden is experiencing a crisis. I am here to say that Joe Biden is not actually experiencing a crisis. Although, in the New York Times, on Sunday, headline, Joe Biden scrambles to stem crisis after Lucy Flores's allegation. The next day, Michelle Goldberg column, quote, Biden's campaign hadn't yet begun and was already in crisis. Today, former Vice President Joseph R. Biden trying to stem escalating crisis. Oh, Christ, with the crisis already. Let us go to the videotape, because today Joe Biden issued a video. The audio problems that you are about to hear are not ours. They are on the source video, because authenticity, or Beto, or something. Anyway, here it begins. Folks, in the coming month, I expect to be talking to you about a whole lot of issues, and I'll always be direct with you. But today, I want to talk about gestures of support and encouragement that I've made to women and some men and have made them uncomfortable. Okay, at this point, let me uh, tell you about the scenery and the angle and the mise-en-scene. It's really low-tech. I think he propped up an iPhone against a bookend or a picture frame. He's on a comfortable-looking leather sofa. There's a throw pillow. The bookshelf in the background has knickknacks and a plate, but no books with the telltale titles on their spine. That's the real way to know that he's trying to send a message, like you'd have one on the Oslo Accords and then something by Naomi Klein or a black-and-white photograph of mill workers' compendium. But I do think this is significant, what I'm about to say next. He's sitting but his suit jacket is buttoned. This is a new trend. I succumb to it to myself, not in real life, but on TV. When you want to seem neater and to have your jacket's line seem straight, you keep it buttoned while sitting. And this, to me, shows that Joe Biden can change with the times. Let us continue. And I always tried to be, uh, in my career, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands, I hug people, I, I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. And, and uh, whether they're women, men, young, old, it's, it's the way I've always been. It's the way I've tried to show I care about them and I'm listening. And he just unbuttoned his jacket. So he's still a little bit of a traditionalist. I mean, just how far do you want this seated suit button movement to go? Too far? Biden continues. I always believe governing, quite frankly, life for that matter, is about connecting, about connecting with people. That will change. But I will be more mindful and respectful of people's personal space. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I give the video high marks, but it was a very low degree of difficulty. Oh, sure. Politicians over the years have shown that they could screw up an address to the Boy Scout Jamboree. But this was fine. It was fine. Because as perhaps you gleaned from my tone, I really don't think this was an escalating crisis. Aside from those headlines which called it a crisis, I noted several times in the New York Times and other places calling it a crisis, I noted them saying, you know, we don't really have a good mechanism to see what's real versus what people on Twitter are getting really outraged about. So this was something people on Twitter were getting outraged about. And Joe Biden or his campaign or his potential campaign could look at the polls or where they see him in the race and they could keep telling himself, 
well, I think this is a kerfuffle. I think this will blow over. I think I have to do the necessary things to address this, but I don't think this is real. On the other hand, the evidence for crisis can only build and build and build, such as the nature of Twitter and who's on Twitter and what they use Twitter to say and what is the most common emotional valence to bring to Twitter. On the Washington Post's podcast coverage of this, Post Reports, reporter Elise Vibeck put it this way. And so we have minute after minute of examples of him saying things and behaving physically in certain ways, both toward men and toward women, uh, that some people might consider uh, either brushing up against a line, maybe crossing a line. Listen to the number of qualifiers there. Saying things in certain ways that some people might consider... Later on, the host of that program, Martine Powers, said this of Biden. That even though he's not an official candidate yet, we're all talking about the ways in which Joe Biden has a somewhat checkered past. A checkered past. Well, it was a college student. He needed the money. But a checkered past? I mean, yeah, he's been on the wrong side of a lot of votes. He's made dumb statements. A checkered past, that connotes scandal, does it not? I googled the phrase, a somewhat checkered past, and the top references were two of the people they refer to. This guy, Alex Guerrero, who is Tom Brady's nutritionist. I don't know, maybe it's my Google search engine points to that. This guy was twice sued for fraud. He was fined by the FTC for claiming dietary supplements could cure cancer. All the political stories when you Google somewhat checkered past are about one guy, Alabama Senate candidate. Roy Moore, although I found this Roy Moore related, though not about Roy Moore, quote, in the Chicago Tribune, from what I've read, it seems like this 14-year-old girl who is now 50-something has a somewhat checkered past, Johnny Creel, 56, an insurance broker wearing a Make America Great Again hat outside the event, said. There is no Joe Biden crisis. The past is not checkered. Joe Biden is not even a candidate. I think Joe Biden ran the Anita Hill hearings poorly. I think he championed the 1994 crime bill correctly. I know that he advised the map of Iraq be redrawn ethnically. Seems like a bad idea. To me, all Joe Biden is, is an acceptable, garden variety, non-insane candidate who probably would beat Donald Trump. He is an in-case-of-insanity break-glass option. That's all he is. A septuagenarian who doesn't want to scrap private insurance tomorrow, who's not going to be led down a path of wackadoo policy proposals in an effort to win the Democratic primary by getting to the left of a man who literally doesn't define himself as a Democrat. That man, Bernie Sanders, by the way, ran a campaign that actually harassed women. He has said he's changed. He has apologized. I believe him. Of course, Bernie also subscribes to MMT theory. But the big thing, why we're not making a huge deal of the actual scandal in the actual Bernie campaign, as opposed to nose touching, is because there are no pictures or weird details like hair sniffing. So really, no biggie. And no biggie, eh, medium-y maybe, but no crisis with Joe Biden. Because let us not forget this fellow. If you, if you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? You know, the thing makes it so... Yes, windmills cause cancer. And then Donald J. Trump, in speaking to uh, Republicans last night, 
talked about a highway. He didn't say which one or where. This highway had to be rerouted to protect turtles and snakes. And the downside was if you wanted to drive drunk, a twisty, bendy road makes it harder to do so. Seriously. Now, to his credit, Donald J. Trump did say drunk driving is bad, but he also said roads that don't wend are better if you're going to drive drunk. Here's that clip. And it used to be a straight line, right? So if somebody's a little tipsy, they had too many drinks, which is a bad thing, at least they could drive straight. Now, in order to get away from nesting turtles, rattlesnakes, and everything else, that highway is the craziest looking sucker you've ever seen. I play this to remind us of the stakes and also to reclaim the concept of crisis. Stop with the my nose touched his nose definition. Refocus on the daft rudderless liar thrusting us into an ongoing never ending crisis. It's barely noted anymore. Seriously, did you hear about that drunk driving thing? It is a nonstop roiling actual correct use of the word crisis. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Daniel told me of the time he once went in for a high five with Joe Biden and the vice president left him hanging. It was unnecessary and humiliating. It's not hard. Do better. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, is pleased to announce our newest offering, Drunk Driving Tips from a Non-Drinker. On the straight and narrow, wherever you get your podcasts. The gist I actually have heard that bamboo water bottles cause drowning. Glug, glug, glug. Umpru de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>